I'm Andy Kesson, and this is A Bit Lit. Founded at the beginning of the UK lockdown, A Bit Lit is about conversation, celebrating and exploring theatre, literature and creative work across all periods and of all kinds. We've talked to professional wrestlers and about Ghostbusters and medieval sex positivity. We've looked at the histories of race, gender and sexuality. We followed migrating coconuts and the history of wine and cheese. We've gone from Jane Austen and Shakespeare to EastEnders via the history of early television, young adult fiction, photography, animation and documentary making. And with over 100 films already, many other subjects as well. Join the conversations at our website, abitlit.co or on YouTube and follow us on Twitter at abitlit. And Vereen, hello, how are you doing? I'm well, how are you? I'm good, thank you. I'm really good and I'm delighted you're joining us. Thank you so much. Um, we're starting these films by asking contributors to introduce themselves and give us an overview of their work. So would you mind doing that, please? Sure. My name is Umbreen Dadaboy. I teach literature at Harvey Mudd College in Claremont, California. And just a little bit about Harvey Mudd, it's a, a school that only grants STEM degrees. So I teach in an interdisciplinary department, mm. which has been fantastic for me in terms of the freedom that I have mm. to do the kind of research that I want. And the kind of research that I do, I started out um, when I was in my PhD program, I really True, and I still love the history plays, and I truly thought that I was going to work on Shakespeare's history plays. And then I had a teaching experience that made me realize that maybe I should do something else. And that something else was thinking about the representation of race and religion in early modern drama, specifically drama that's set in the Mediterranean. And so that's where my work started. Um, since then, I have sort of separated thinking about race from thinking about religion in a lot of my work and then also then come back to thinking about race in the Mediterranean because I think a lot of the conversations that we've had about the Mediterranean as a location have been centered a lot more on religion and cultural difference and race gets in there through culture and religion but the interrogation of blackness in that space and and particularly what is happening with enslavement and black identity, um, I think has been elided, at least in terms of the, the folks who are working on English literature. I think historians, some historians, are doing more with that than we are. Great, thank you. And for the benefit of people who are new to thinking about the Mediterranean as a, as a geographical and cultural space in the early modern period, um, this feels like a massive question, so I apologize. But you know, what what would you tell someone who was new to those um, these ideas? What, what are the kind of core ways of thinking about the Mediterranean um, race and religion might you talk them through? Mm -hmm. So it, it, that is a huge question. Let me <laughs> try to break it down um, to, to what I deal with. I mean, the Mediterranean, I think, is the, um, right, it's the Middle Sea. It's the sea that is connecting uh, Europe to Asia, to Africa, to the Atlantic. So as a space, it's doing a lot of work, right? There is a lot of work happening there in terms of trade and traffic. Um, it's a symbolic space too, in terms of um, these are both boundaries and frontiers, which are also then places that bring people together, right? And so they foster 
close intimacy between people who might have different religious traditions, people who might have different linguistic traditions, people who that might have different cultural traditions, right? So it's automatically the space that is a contact zone that facilitates movement. And you have movement of people, movement of ideas, movement like, and then the, these boundaries are fluid too, right? You have empires sort of taking over land and then having to recede from that. And so, you have cultural shifts that you can chart to. So it's a very interesting space to look at for, for those moments when we want to think about how the English were navigating cultural difference, especially in the drama, because so much of the drama is set in this geography. Yeah, thank you. Um, so we're thinking both in terms of the lens of, um, of real Mediterranean politics, geopolitics, and what on earth the English think is, is happening in the Mediterranean and how that impacts on the stories they tell in, in plays. Um, you've also mentioned the issue of, of empire. And I guess one of the peculiarities of this, this historical period for people who are new to think about empire is that this is a period very early on in, in the days of the kind of proto-British empire or proto-English and Scottish empires. Um, and we have very different kinds of empires in play uh, in the Mediterranean, where England is not even a bit player, is I presume is fairly absent beyond diplomacy. You might want to correct me on that one, but um, yeah, what what sort of um, cultures, countries, if that's the right word, nation states, empires are we talking about here? Mm -hmm. um, so I'm really bad at dates, but I'm going to try. <laughs> I'm going to try for a date right now. That's brave. <laughs> I'm bad at dates as well. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that English is the Levant Company gets established around 1580. I'm gonna say around some somewhere around there. Might, that might be the correct date or not. Um, but you, so so they're starting trade in that region, right? And it becomes um, it's one of the most profitable tr uh, trading companies until the East India Company, of course, gets going, um, and that I think is around 1600 or so. But um, the, the Mediterranean is occupied already by the Ottoman Empire. Uh, the Ottomans in 1453, of course, we know conquer Constantinople. That turns into Istanbul. Uh, so they have sort of approached the, um, or, or taken the seat of the Eastern Roman Empire in Byzantium, and they lay claim to the sort of, um, they call themselves, the Ottoman emperors start to call themselves the Caesars of Rome, right? So they, so they lay claim to a kind of Roman European identity by virtue of conquest. So, and they occupy much of the Mediterranean basin. If you imagine it in your mind, here's the Mediterranean, here's the Ottoman empire going into Eastern Europe and into what we would now call much of sort of um, Eastern the Germanic states in the period so that and then you also on the western side of Europe have the Habsburg Empire with Spain and other Germanic territories so they're really in charge in Europe or not in Europe in um, Africa the northern part of Africa you have Egypt I'm trying to conjure this map in my mind right Sorry. now <laughs> That's okay. Um, Egypt is under Ottoman control, and then you have all of these sort of um, Ottoman regencies, 
But then Morocco is not under Ottoman control. Certainly they have uh, alliances with the Ottoman Empire, but that's its own independent polity. And then in certain parts of North Africa, you have Spanish-controlled regions, small Spanish-controlled regions. So really, uh, this geography is controlled by what we might consider, um, and I hate to bring up a sort of notion of uh, East and West cultural difference or clash of civilizations, but you have the Ottomans and other Islamicate empires on, on, on one side of this geography, and then you have Catholic powers on the other side. And then you have England over here in the hinterlands, not Catholic, sort of coming in and trying to, trying to figure out how they can position themselves in this region. And what we see in the drama then is not necessarily very many English characters, but we certainly see then European characters who will be Italian or who will be Spanish, uh, sometimes even French, and they will be Catholic, but they stand as surrogates for the English because they're because they occupy the heroic positions against the Ottomans or against any kind of Moorish character. Um, and Moorish, I know, is a, a Moor is a complex term, which can mean black, which can mean Muslim, which can mean Arab. So um, that, that term is never taken as any kind of stable signifier other than there's something different here. So it's a mark of racial difference. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Um, and yes, you're right. We we don't want to be reinforcing kind of east-west um, binaries. And I guess the the geographical map you're conjuring for is is really fascinating because there's a kind of south southeast and northwest um, mm -hmm. world going on. But at the same time, those worlds are contesting for each other's spaces in really uh, interesting ways. And I I guess both sides are also reading the Mediterranean via the Romans. So there's kind of a legacy of Roman Empire. I mean, even in the fact we call it Mediterranean, as you said at the outset. Um, everyone is reading it via and, and hoping to have the mantle of, of um, a previous um, great Mediterranean um, empire as well. Mm -hmm. um, and I also don't want to suggest about the Mediterranean that it's only a space for contest because we have so much also um, collaboration. There are mm -hmm. so many treaties. Venice was often called the... Um, the, court, the Turks' courtesan, right? Because the Venetians would have very good relations with the Ottomans at the same time that then conflict would break out too. So it is very much a space where people are working together, negotiating how to live with each other. And that's what I think is really fascinating about thinking about studying border zones or contact zones that people are, that there's so much negotiation happening to survive together. And yet often we focus on the conflict angle. And I think the conflict angle is particularly attractive in our current moment where we, where the U S at least has been waging a war on terror in Islamic geographies for over 20 years. Right. And so the, the old conflict seems to justify this new conflict. And so we, we, we need that conflict narrative to be able to do what we're doing right now. Yeah. And yet, as you say, there are all kinds of negotiations and trades happening. And um, you were very brave to start dating things. I always, I always say that um, history, like humans, is hard to date and try very hard not to get involved in maths or numbers. Um, but what, one of the things that's really striking when you start thinking about the dating of those early trading companies coming out of England is um, 
how um, contemporary they are to the establishing of the playhouses themselves. And it feels like, you know, these spaces which are trading in imaginative stories and politics and, and stories about religion um, uh, are happening at the same time as these new experiments in and these new imaginations of um, international relationships and the possibilities of, um, yeah, cross-national cross business relationships as well. So if it's all right, can we turn to the, the plays then? You've been telling us about plays imagining the Mediterranean. Um, would you mind either telling us about particular plays or are there particular playhouses or, or moments in the early modern period which start to think about the Mediterranean? Um, this is a very open question. Basically, tell us anything you think is exciting about <laughs> the English playhouse's engagement with these Mediterranean worlds. Um, there's... I'll, there are so many plays, so I'll <laughs> narrow it down to a few. Uh, most recently, I've been working, uh, I, I seem to always be working on Othello, even though every time I finish writing on it, I'm like, okay, I'm going to take a break. And then for some reason, I need to come back to this play. So that, that play, of course, set in Venice, set in Cyprus, um, the Eastern Mediterranean is very important to the action of the play, right? Traditional readings of the play read, um, and these are problematic readings, but they're the ones that we receive when we start studying the play first, right? Venice is the location of law and order and rule, and Cyprus is the location of chaos and misrule. And so the movement from Venice to Cyprus represents those things, and it's not a coincidence that it's a further eastern eastward movement. Um, and in, in that geography, then Othello is seen to embody the murderous and barbarous Moor um, once he moves from the nobility and um, civility of Venice to the chaotic place that is Cyprus. That's a traditional reading. I don't, um, <laughs> I don't emphasize or support that reading when, when I teach the play, but certainly it's one that we get often. Um, and so that the Mediterranean becomes a location for experimentation, for change, for uh, this notion of going native, which means that when, when you're in a foreign geography, as uh, and the you here, is, it's never me, it's a, a conjuring of an English subject that is usually male, um, that is probably white, that is from a class that could be a merchant class or maybe some sort of gentry class um, who goes to this other geography and is seduced by material things. So um, Othello enacts the opposite, right? Othello is someone who is a, a black African Moor, as he's called in the play, who in Venice embodies everything that is Venetian. And once he moves away from Venice, then he sort of comes to inhabit the naturalness of what he's supposed to be, what his racial identity is. In that way, I think the play is very problematic. Um, and I, I don't know how one rehabilitates this play. Um, I don't ever try to do that. Uh, other plays that I'm thinking about are two that I've been writing on recently. One is The Battle of Alcazar, which is a very early play that deals with the Mediterranean, and this time we're dealing with the Western Mediterranean because the Battle of Alcazar is a play about Morocco, and it's a play about um, the involved. There is an English character in that play, and so it might have been popular to English for English audiences then. Um, 
And it also features the king of Portugal. So it's about a historical battle uh, where three kings died. Two of those kings were Moroccan kings. One was a pretender, one was the sort of rightful heir, and the, the Portuguese king ends up dying too. And in that play, we don't necessarily have this notion of going native, but what we do see in that play, what, what that play I think establishes very much is a notion of race and blackness tied to, um, tied to moral characteristics of um, deviance, degeneracy, evil, right? So we see in that play kind of establishment of certain motifs for black characters or Moorish characters that then become rehearsed over and over again. And then we get Shakespeare playing with that kind of motif in Othello in 1603. And I'm not even going to try to date Robert Greene's <laughs> Battle of Alcazar when I know it's 1590-something, I think. <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, I've been working on the early playhouses, so I, I, I'm a little bit more confident with this play. Um, so yeah, George Peel's writing that play, I think around 1591, 92, um, and the battle is 1578. And as you say, three kings died, so three separate um, you know, three different countries lost their, their monarch. So, you know, what an extraordinary event. And it's a relatively recent contemporary event that's being staged. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't know if, feel free to correct me on this, I'm really, if you think this is less interesting, but for me, one of the striking contrasts between those two plays is that the, um, the white Europeans are the racial minorities in the demographic of Battle of Alcazar. Um, whereas in Othello, as you've said, that is very much Othello's position. And I don't know, does that, does that change anything in, in terms of the relationship of the two plays? I think it does. So the, the, I mean, obviously if we're thinking about who the actors are, they're all white and sort of blackface. But I think that the play is very interesting, and it might have been interesting to the early moderns for this same reason, is that because it really foregrounds this foreign conflict and we, it really puts in a position, a heroic position, um, a black character, right? Something that obviously we hadn't seen before on the stage and we don't really see later on the stage either. Uh, what what for me is really interesting about that play is thinking about how scholarship about it has really transformed the heroic Moor into a white Moor, uh, which which we don't see in the play text, but we see that we see the source that the that Peel bases his play on, talking about the whiteness of this Moor, and that the way that he talks about the, that whiteness has been read by critics to be not a symbolic whiteness, but a literal whiteness, right? And so this notion of whitewashing this character that is very obviously a Moor plays into then the ways in which we as critics of this period have transformed Moor from black into a more ambiguous racial identity. Um, that is sort of unmoored from blackness to to Arabness to tawniness to all of these other things, right? And so, so my research is really about thinking thinking through the need to make this I, the signifier more more expansive and make it mean more things, and what that does that how that then marginalizes the blackness that I think is rooted 
in this word and this term and this designation? Uh, again, a big question, but do you have a solution for that, that problem? <laughs> um, Andy, we are not in the business of giving solutions. We are in the business of raising questions. Right, right, right. <laughs> but I guess thinking about how to open, open up that space, either for students or for other readers, um, I mean, we're dealing here with plays which are radically othering as well as representing um, um, non-white forms of race and, and quite heavily involved in the invention, the kind of early modern invention of race. Mm -hmm. So I guess what I'm, I'm not asking to solve it then, but maybe how do we combat, how do we challenge, how do we unpack, how do we resist some of the things that these plays are trying to do to, to us, to, the, to their audiences, to their characters, to their actors and to our imaginations about, about identity. Is that a better version of that question? <laughs> I think both questions are good. Sorry. Uh, I think, uh, I think one, of, one of the things that I have been coming back to more and more in my research is uh, thinking about how uh, wh when we produce scholarship, we rely on the archive of scholarship that has come before us. And, and that archive is very important. And that they have done a lot of the groundwork that can serve as a springboard for us to launch our critique. Uh, at the same time, that archive of criticism is also implicated in a way of learning and often in a way of learning that is located in the subject positions of those scholars, yeah. right? So um, there has been a sustained move in our field to kind of separate the Renaissance, the early modern period, uh, from the degradations of empire. And in, 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 in what I mean by that is that empire is built on exploitation, on bondage, on enslavement, on genocide of indigenous people, right? On all of those things. And how can we have this glorious early modern period if it's, it's also implicated in all of those things, right? And so thinking of launching any kind of, critique of race or even pointing out race has been um, not hopefully not so much anymore but certainly when I was writing my dissertation I was advised to put race in quotation marks because I didn't but that was advice given to me because it doesn't exist in this period right prime looking at primary documents shows us that it does exist in the period so the, the scholarship that we rely on uh, to come back to the kind of point that I was making, the scholarship that rely on often that we rely on often has a kind of white way of knowing, and that white way of knowing is couched as an objective way because whiteness doesn't see itself as racialized. Right? Whiteness is never positioned as racialized; it just is a position from which to speak and to define. So, I think one of the ways that we can actually look at these texts and sort of apprehend what they're trying to tell us is to have uh, uh, an awareness of our own lack of racial literacy and our own positioning in terms of how we read and how we've been trained to read. Um, and many of us have been trained to read and not pick up the racial clues in these texts because we've been trained to think that race doesn't exist in this period. So if we actually think that race exists in this period and read with that lens, we will 
be approaching the kind of analysis I think that will let us see this world for what it was trying to do and say. Yeah, thank you. Um, that was a brilliant and profound um, reply. And I'm trying to think about how to link it back to some of the early conversations we're having about, about those two plays. But in a way, that's, that was partly what was driving my question about Alcazar's demographic. And you make the very important point that it's a, it's a fictional demographic, not a, not, a, not a demographic of the cast. But I, I do wonder in a, in a world in which almost all of the actors are in some form of blackface, what that then does to the performance of whiteness by, by white performers, if it defamiliarizes, makes strange, and, and therefore kind of invents a kind of racialized whiteness, just, just in terms of how an actor is being asked to perform. And I think you're telling us more about language use in these plays, the language of race, but I wonder too if there's something about the embodiment and the performance of, of racial difference which might start to affect the actors playing white characters, as well as the actors playing characters defined as, as racially other. I don't know if that makes. Mm-hmm. Um, it does, um, and I, I wish I did more with performance and acting. But I just thinking about the uh, the way that the play constructs these characters. I think about Sebastian's role as this kind of white savior, right? And so, even though he is the minority in the space that is largely a black African space, the way in which that character um, is given status because, you know, he's going to bring his invading army and help these people. And really the utter villainy of Muli, I'm going to get all of them confused now. It is, I mean, this is something, this is the problem, this, this is the play's fault, isn't it? Because the play seems completely baffled by I mean, calling it Muslim terminology is completely the wrong thing to call it because it's not. <laughs> but it, it attempts to use what it thinks of as Muslim terminology and it, and it just becomes uber confusing. Yeah, yeah, it is. I mean, when I was writing on this play, I had to check so many times just to make sure <laughs> I was like, like the right character was doing the thing that they were trying to say. Abdul Malik is the one that survives, right? Um, and he's called something else. I think he's called Muliset in the play. And then his, he gets a name change. And then I think Muli Hamid is the bad one. Muli Muhammad might be the bad one. Um, in any case, <laughs> right? And if, if Muli Muhammad is his name, right? Muhammad, uh, Muhammad is a kind of um, bastardization of that, the prophet's name, right? Um, his blackness is so over the top, right? He, we, we can see in that character all of the over the top villainous characters that we see in other early modern plays, um, very much like Tamburlaine, except he, Tamburlaine isn't necessarily racialized. I mean, he is racialized in a certain kind of way, but not necessarily in the same way. Um, Just but I think. Sorry, Ambry, just interrupt for, for the viewers. Tamburlaine is a, is a contemporary play written about uh, two, three years earlier about a, um, I guess there's maybe there's room for debate about quite how he's being racialized, but it's a play set in, effectively set in roughly in the Middle East. I mean, mm-hmm. he gets everywhere, um, but it's sort of about a Middle Eastern warlord. Again, feel free to correct my terminology if you want to, but just to just make sure people know where you're going with this analogy. Yes, thank you. Um, thank you for the reminder. But um, yeah, and I don't work that much on Tamburlaine to know the debates of, of 
how folks have worked on race with him. I know that folks have done a lot of work on religion and Islam, and that can also be racializing. Uh, but here I'm specifically talking about blackness, and I don't think that that comes up in Tamburlaine. But what does come up is that kind of uh, excessive personality, right? And then when you layer onto that excessive personality, this kind of um, utter blackness, right? The play uh, in in the Battle of Alcazar, the word Negro is used seven times. Almost every t instance of that word occurs in relation to uh, Muli Muhammad. So that is also doing a lot of work in terms of emphasizing his blackness and his difference from the other Moorish characters, right? And I think that that's, that's really the important thing in terms of thinking about performance, right? This hyper blackness, this hyper visibility that's given to this character must then sort of inform how his blackness has to be performed in a different register from the blackness of the other heroic moors of the show. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Um, that's really helpful. Um, Ambreen, we're drawing towards the end of the close of our conversation. And I, I know that we're both very aware that we're having this conversation two weeks into um, uh, the confrontation on the streets, um, not just in America, but in the UK where I'm speaking from and, and around the world, um, picking up on an awful lot of things we've been talking about ourselves. So I suppose I just wanted to ask um, what it means to be working on these issues in the, in the current moment and how, how, again, might we usefully connect some of the historical work you're doing what's happening in our own in our own moment. I mean, I think that that is something that we are all aware of, whether or not we actually physically walk into a classroom in the fall, or we're already in the classroom right now. Um, in in whatever format that will be, I think we will have to consider the ways in which we read these texts can reinforce. Uh, racist attitudes can reinforce forms of white supremacy. Um, we don't need to m make the early modern period or these texts relevant necessarily to our students, but I think we have to make these texts matter in a way beyond just the fact that this is Shakespeare or this is important. And I think that when people only see themselves in these texts as the villainous characters, when they only see themselves as being um, trampled on by the triumphant European characters, especially in these moments of encounter, that does certain kinds of trauma to people. Mm. And when it, that's not acknowledged, then we license that trauma. Um, so I think it's really important as teachers to think about what we are assigning and how we're assigning them, right? If, if I'm tempted in this moment to assign Othello because I think that's a play that's about multiculturalism, um, I think I'm doing my students a disservice because I don't know what kind of multicultural message that play is giving to people. Um, I certainly, every time I read the play, I'm hoping for a different ending. I'm not getting that different ending, right? Um, I also, I, so I think that we have to be attentive to the text that we pick. I think that we have to be very attentive to the messages that are being received that we, in terms of the identities that we inhabit, 
might not think are a problem because it's very hard to, even though we are constantly being asked to be empathetic and put ourselves in other people's shoes, it's really very hard to do that and to understand the experiences of other people. But I think if you, if you're going, I think we have to learn how to teach these plays that deal with race. And I think we have to bring race very, um, determinedly into our classrooms and really highlight it more than just here is one week where we're going to talk about race through this play. I think it has to be built in. Um, and race doesn't mean people who we think have race. Everybody has race. So right. Highlighting moments of whiteness, highlighting forms of nation building that rely on whiteness, right? I'm teaching the history plays in the fall. And so it's all going to be about how we make a white masculine militarized English nation, right? And those are the things that I want to highlight and focus on. And I love these plays. I just want to talk about the poetry in them, but I have to talk about these other things too, because they matter in terms of how we make our national myths. Um, so, so really, I think in this moment, what we have to do is be really, uh, is to rely on the archive of people who have been doing work on race in the early modern period and try to follow their lead in terms of acquiring racial literacy so that we can actually let our students know um, and acquire these skills too. Because that's, I think, the biggest problem, as Ian Smith pointed out in his birthday lecture, that people, or Shakespeare's birthday lecture for the Folger, that's available online, um, <laughs> that uh, students lack racial literacy and i think it's not just students who lack racial literacy but i think we also in the professoriate lack a kind of racial literacy yeah yeah thank you um we have a resources section on our website so next to this film anyone watching this who'd like to follow up your recommendation of ian smith's lecture we'll make sure there's a link in the in the resources page um and amberine if it's all right i'll ask you for some other tips for things to put um, in the resources section as well. So there'll be other other recommendations from Amberine. Um, yeah, that's fascinating. And it's making me think again about why the, the English playhouses in this, in this country, which is still relatively unimportant geopolitically on the international scene, is becoming more and more important, um, but it's still relatively unimportant next to some, someone um, like, like the Habsburg Empire or the Ottoman Empire. Um, why these playhouses are putting on these stories and, and what are you saying about yourself and what choices are you making when you go and see a play called The Battle of Alcazar instead of seeing Arden of Faversham, which is about an Englishman in a little town um, and ditto, you know, a play named after someone called Othello, which is presumably an unfamiliar name to most English people. What are you saying about yourself? What choices are you making? What imaginative connections are you making? Um, and it feels like you're pointing us towards the fact that some of the racial literacy some of the negative kinds of racial literacy are being inculcated by these plays. These plays are showing, showing um, its audience what whiteness might look like and what non-white non um, race might look mm -hmm. like. Mm -hmm. um, it's training its audience into forms of racism, in other words. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I think um, Mary Louise Pratt in her book... Uh, no, I'm going to blank on it. It's on the contact zone. I'm pretty sure it's called Imperial Eyes. Uh, you can edit this part out. <laughs> we'll, put, we'll put that in the resources as well. 
<laughs> what she talks about, and she's talking about a later period, but I think that we can see how these playhouses function. And, and what she says is that um, they make empire knowable for the domestic audience, right? Mm -hmm. And so here we're talking about this pre-imperial phase in English and British history, but it is sort of domesticating the foreign for consumption by the home audience and letting us know, right, these are the characteristics of the foreign. And so it's creating this discourse and this archive upon which then um, Orientalists, for example, and other people can rely when they have to actually administer the empire that will come. And for the domestic audience, it is creating through the representation of this difference, a kind of English white national identity. Yeah, thank you. Um, and as my final question, as part of this conversation, um, you said it right from the outset that you moved from wanting to write about the history plays to think about race and religion. And you just mentioned the fact you'll be teaching history plays. Um, what are the connection, what, what connections are there there then where you've got these plays which are making those offers you've just described of thinking about um, domesticating um, forms of, of, of foreignness. What on earth are the history plays doing to Englishness and whiteness, um, would you say? Well, I think that one of the things that we definitely get from the history plays is this um, triumphant narrative of, uh, and a kind of teleology, of course, that will culminate in Henry VII and then Elizabeth. And so we get this sort of um, notion of this English infighting and bickering and this family feud, but on a grand scale, right? And so elevating the... Um, the really kind of provincial or parochial internal conflict of this family to a national um, kind of pseudo-imperial level, right? That can then be on the level of the kinds of great histories that we see coming from the Ottoman Empire, right? So when Knowles collects his history of the general history of the Ottoman Empire, that is like a over a thousand page folio, right? It is huge. It is sort of massive chronicling like a millennia of history. We, the English might not have that level of a history, but what the history plays do in, in staging this conflict and, and dramatizing it in this way is, is to kind of make the English nation um, as great as all of these, and, and to, for it to have a history as worthy of empire as all of these other real empires do. Yeah, great. Thank you. Um, Ambrina, I realize I forgot to, to warn you about this, but we, we tend to end our videos by asking um, yet, yet one more very generic question, so apologies. But we, we, we're ending by asking contributors um, what the word literature means to them. So where it sits in their, in their practice, in the vocabulary, either as a professional or as a, a kind of personal reader. Um, it's, a, it's a word which I often find quite troubling, so I don't feel like you need to be super positive about it. But yeah, do you mind telling us a little bit about what that word means to you? Sure. Um, I, I think that literature, and, and this I'm just stealing from um, Marjorie Garver's Loaded Words, but I think literature is good to think with. <laughs> and that is definitely something that I try to bring into my pedagogy because um, when you teach non-majors who don't necessarily 
buy into literature in the same way that an English major might, right? We automatically think, oh, well, I'm an English major, therefore the, th the object that I study is worthy of study simply by virtue of that. For me, teaching STEM students, I sometimes have to make the case for the worthiness of the object that we are studying. And literature gets them to think through their world in a different way so that we can have these really difficult conversations about how our society is structured through a text that can be our conduit um, without necessarily, and I don't shy away from making my students uncomfortable, but without necessarily having them feel under attack by the conversations that we're having. So literature can, literature is valuable in and of itself. Art, of course, is valuable in and of itself. It doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to teach us anything, but it can be very useful in terms of getting people to think about what, what is happening in the world and what is my place in the world. So I, I really like that word also because it gives a kind of cachet to the things that we do, especially in, in a world and also in um, an institution where I am, where if students aren't majoring in my field, then there's a way that the work that I do can be marginalized. Yeah. So I need to, I need all the resources that I have on hand to, to center this work. Yeah, thank you. And I guess too, our conversation, thanks to you, has, has been very interdisciplinary in itself in that we've been thinking about geography, we've been thinking about, about race, which itself has often very problematically been seen as kind of the purview of science. Mm -hmm. um, so I can already see lots of ways in which your students must be benefiting hugely from the kind of work you're you're bringing to them. Um, if it's okay to summarize some of the things that you've given us just um, to kind of round up and then feel free to correct me on any of it if I, I'm getting this wrong, but I've been really excited to think about trade traffic across the Mediterranean at the same time as the English playhouses themselves start to open and tell these increasingly bizarre stories about themselves and about what they think of as others. Um, thinking about the differences and the relationships between a fellow uh, and Alcazar, I really, I'm always excited to talk about a familiar play and a play which will be less familiar to lots of, um, lots of people. I'm certainly never going to read Alcazar in the same way again now I think about Sebastian as white saviour. Um, <laughs> thinking about uh, the hyper-blackness of um, uh, one of the central um, characters. And I'll be looking out for the word Negro, as you say, you seven times across the play. Um, I think that's really interesting. Um, but finally, I think, um, thinking about the issue of lit lit literacy, uh, racial literacy, um, following the lead of those um, amongst us who've already done this work. Uh, we often think of um, race studies as a recent addition to the field, but of course it's more than a generation, it's been around for more than a generation, and following the lead of those who've already given us kinds of, of racial literacy. Um, in order to resist what you describe with the English history plays as triumphant teleology, but of course that that triumphant teleology is very much here with us, with us right now and something that we're fighting um, mm. in our own time. So yeah, those things I've taken out of this conversation and I'm really grateful for. D did you want to add anything more to that? You made me sound so smart, Andy. Thank you. <laughs> uh, you made you sound so smart. <laughs> I'm just an echo chamber, um, but I'm, I really value this conversation. So thank you very much. Thank you. Take care. You too. A bit late celebrating creativity and research of all kinds.